Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 4th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. In just over a week, the government is to announce Budget 2022. Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath will unveil the €4.7 billion Euro package next Tuesday. The ministers will have about a billion for new spending and €500 million Euro for tax cuts. There will be a tenor on the pension or there will be war. That's according to to the front page headline for today's Daily Mail as pressure mounts for the pension to increase by €10. Euro. There's been no increase in the last two years. A rise of between €3 and €5 euro is expected at a minimum but with the cost of living set to soar over the next year, calls are mounting for increases of at least €10 euro and up to €15 euro per week. Let's uh, speak with Anne Dempsey who speaks with uh, a lot of older people through Third Age and indeed on the Senior Line. She's the Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with Senior Line and on the line with us this morning. Good morning to you, Anne, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What are are people expecting to hear next Tuesday and what are they hoping to hear? Good morning, Michael. Yeah, it's been a really interesting exercise for us talking, as you say, to our callers and to people in Summerhill and indeed our own links with older people. And just spontaneously, a small number of very interconnecting points and spontaneous points were made. To begin with the pension, as you did, Michael, not everybody mentioned it. Uh, those that did need it and want it, and they said that, as you intimated, €5 euro would be no use. That They need €10 euro to uh, kind of begin to cover the increased cost of living that people are already uh, experiencing. And this was linked to fuel bills. And people are very, very worried as they look towards winter and the cold and um, they feel they'll be will be unable to heat their homes sufficiently. So a, a number of people also talked about the allowance and about restoring it to 32 weeks as it used to be. So cold homes were an issue. And this again, they're all very connecting. It's very mm. interesting. This was linked to um, cold homes, darkness was linked by some of our rural callers to fear of rural crime being committed under cover of darkness, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that was a whole kind of home stuff. Now the other thing, and again, home linked property tax, a lot of our callers 
uh, have received their letters from their revenue, causing a lot of disquiet in some homes that A, the amount has gone up a little bit, uh, they don't understand why, and almost as big a point is there is no one they can talk to about it. Huge issue. Um, online support is available on the website, but many of our colleagues say, I want to talk mm. to another person. Mm. You know, mm. big, big issue. And that, again, brought up for callers, not necessarily linked to budget, but just as we talked about their life being as an older person now in Ireland, mm. just right now, feeling marginalised because they're not computer literate. OK, what, what, what's happening in that sense, though, if they're not able to talk to anybody and they're calling you, are you able to talk through the increases with them or are you directing them to somebody else who'll be able to do that, a, a local politician perhaps? Yes, we're we're not so much we're not talking to through the increases. It's, I think it would be you know it, it, that would be their own situation mm. and it would depend on their own because, because we've heard of kind of two homes on the same road differing uh, tax bounds and that's to do with how the revenue is assessing those two people, mm. which we wouldn't obviously enter into. We are trying to encourage people. You know, a lot of people have somebody they could call, have have a, a son, have a daughter, have their local community uh, information, even though they're close to the mm. maybe to give them in because that's an excellent service as we all know so we're trying to encourage them you know not to be, even go down to their local library which is now open and try and talk to somebody there yeah. so to try and I mean there is usually somebody you can find who will help you but not it mightn't be a first responder but you know what I mean mm-hmm. so I, I, I didn't think of talking to their to their politician uh, that would be maybe interesting if you could get them Okay uh, just back up a, a little bit Anne mm-hmm. uh, and the mm-hmm. increase you were saying it has to be at least a, a tenor, you're saying, in line with that uh, front uh, page headline from uh, the Daily Mail today, a tenor or there'll be war. Uh, now, when you say a, a tenor, because you were talking about the pension and the fuel allowance, are, are you talking about 10 euro being spread across both payments, let's say a, an extra fiver on the pension and an extra fiver on the fuel allowance? Or are you talking about 10 euro on the pension and an increase on the fuel allowance? Most people weren't saying that they were saying ten euro on the pension, but it also, but it was it was bringing up their general penury. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it came up that that they're they're, they're they'd like more money because they're very worried about mm. how they'll manage this winter. You know. Well, heating bills could increase by four or five hundred euro over the course of it, the next year. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and not everybody gets the fuel allowance, of course. That's the point as well. And some mm. callers said, you know, I feel I should qualify for it. And, and uh, you know, talking about the, uh, the, the, the the threshold and all of that. So there was a lot of chat about financial matters, obviously. But interestingly, a lot of people want to talk about other things. One of the points that um, people were beginning to make was that they're beginning to come out again in their own communities and beginning to kind of experiencing yeah. their own communities in a different way, in mm. a new way. And this is both for mem- our members in Summerhill and callers. And there's talk again about winter, lighting, paths, safe paths, better public transport. Our, our, our members in Summerhill would like much better transport links mm. outside of Dublin. So there's a lot of environmental stuff is coming up kind of just very kind of naturally as people talked about 
their lives opening up again. Okay, and we may hear something about that today in the National Development Plan, but it's a question of what you can do now that you can do something. Finally, again, people are allowed out and that sort of thing. Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization was just saying last week how severely impacted older people were by the pandemic. And there's a lot of calls for a COVID bonus. And indeed, there may be some recognition given to all of us for what we went through uh, during the pandemic uh, in next week's budget. Uh, would you favour the idea of vouchers being given to people, uh, which will be predominantly to give a, a boost uh, to the hospitality tourism industry? We haven't talked about that, Michael. I suppose, speaking personally, would I favour I'm concerned about all the money that's gone and I'm concerned about people that haven't been working. I'm concerned about people in hospitality, tourism. I am concerned about that. Um, I think older people, while we're talking about how older people have been impacted, and they've been impacted hugely emotionally and mentally and indeed financially, I do feel we have to think of our whole nation and all the needs that are there and kind of being fair to all citizens in society. Mm. And I think a lot of our callers are like that as well. They're not crappy. Do you know what I mean? There, there's a lot of kind of fairness and reasonableness in many of the calls we got. Okay. Because a lot of these people, if their sons and daughters are in that more difficult position, you know. Excuse me. Okay, uh, so, but overall you're talking about uh, or hoping for an increase of 10 to 15 euro uh, in terms uh, of uh, what people receive next week. Uh, and people can call you on one eight hundred eighty forty five ninety one. That's uh, the senior line, which will open at 10 o'clock this morning and stay open until 10 this evening. That's 1800-80-45-91. And thank you indeed for joining thank us uh, this morning. And Dempsey is the communications manager and training facilitator with Senior Line. Now, there are hopes as well that there will be in, an increase in payments uh, to the unemployed next week. Breed O'Brien, Head of Policy and Media with the INOU, the Irish National Organisation of the Unemployed, is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Breed, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning as well. What are people hoping for and what are they expecting? Well, um, we are also seeking a 10 euro increase to job seekers' payments. Our, our annual delicate conference this year, the General Branch, which is the mechanism through which unemployed people play an active role in the running of the organisation, you know, noted that the pandemic unemployment payment indicated that welfare payments are at a level that is too low and that people feel we need to start to move towards a level that would afford people to meet a minimum essential standard of living and that a 10 euro increase would really be required this year to start moving in that direction. So that is amongst the calls that we have. Mm. Similarly, the Christmas bonus, you know, we would mm. like to see that, you know, that been paid again this year. But there is a challenge for people on a job seekers payment. Um, you have to be on, for most welfare payments, you have to be on them at least a year. But for a job seekers allowance payment, you have to be on it 15 months, which reflects back to a time when job seekers benefit could last after 15 months. In our last crisis, we cut that duration twice. So that lasts only now nine months max. So we feel that adjustment should be made. And that also then has an impact on the fuel allowance. And, you know, between Ireland's obligations under climate change and then, unfortunately, the, you know, the, the, the worrying indications from energy providers that prices are the only way they're going is up. Um, very much we feel, again, eligibility for that should be brought down to 12 months as well to support people who find themselves 
long-term unemployed, that at least they'd be able to meet some of those costs that will be facing them come the new year. You may be told €10 is unrealistic, uh, but are unemployment benefits realistic if uh, the pub payment was €320? Well, they've been at 203 now for a number of years. Inflation is starting again to go in the wrong direction. So the purchasing power of those payments has fallen. So we do feel this year that, that, that there needs to be an increase. We're seeking 10 euros so the payments start to move in the right direction. Uh, we are conscious, you know, that you know that, that there are lots of calls and resources. But when you look at key poverty indicators, people are unemployed or, or are amongst the groups that face challenges on that front. So we really do feel that this year they need to start to address that issue and that 10 euros would help start to, to move things in the right direction. Okay, uh, there is uh, the issue of COVID bonuses. Uh, there is some talk of vouchers being given to all uh, through uh, the budget announcements uh, next week. Uh, but of course, there's the demands from frontline workers. And I, I take it uh, that uh, there is a, an issue in terms of choosing where you spend the money. Uh, and we may be told uh, that frontline workers deserve a COVID bonus, uh, which will cost so many hundreds of millions. And that uh, takes away government's uh, wherewithal in order to give uh, the kind of increases uh, to welfare recipients that you'd be hoping for. Oh, yeah, there are always challenges facing the state. You know, I think a lot of people over the past year and a half in terms of their work went above, you know, above and beyond the call of duty. And, you know, and, and a lot of us will be in very difficult circumstances if they hadn't. So I think the state does have a duty to acknowledge that. Hmm. Um, but it also needs to ensure that people who are struggle, who nearly always struggle, and who are often sort of pushed to the back burner when other issues are addressed, that that cohort are remembered in this budget. And that as we start to move out of this crisis, that we do so in a fair and equitable way. Yeah, but uh, it's not unusual to pit one group of people against another. And uh, it quite often happens, I think, uh, with welfare increases, doesn't it, that they're not possible because something else will have to give. Uh, You may be told uh, that it wouldn't be possible to give 100% redress, for example, to MICA homeowners if welfare was uh, to increase in line with that €10 that you're hoping for. Yeah, there are always choices that face government. I think one of the things that just has struck me around the MICA problem, I was driving my son to Hurling Match. We went past, you know, a, a housing estate out in North Dublin, which had had the pyrite problem. Mm. You know, that we as a country, I think for me, from the last crisis, one of the things that really, and this is a personal opinion, really gets me mad is that, all of this building work happened and so much of it now seems to have been at a standard that was not where it should have been yeah. at all. Yeah. And it's now costing us a small fortune of the country. We really need to make sure that we get all of those systems working properly so that whatever building work is happening now it is of a standard that we will not be having to be spending a phenomenal amounts of money to sort out problems that mm. should never have arisen in the first place. Okay, if the cost of energy increases by four or five hundred euro over the course of the next year, uh, and of course uh, there'll be uh, the knock-on uh, effect, and uh, I think we're going to see inflation uh, increase 
significantly over the course of the next year and that could even uh, be uh, helped by the budget with increases in cigarettes and the like uh, on diesel and so forth. Will a 10 euro increase in welfare, in unemployment benefits be enough? Will people actually uh, be able to enjoy a better standard of living in other words? Um, If the cost of living continues to go in the direction it now appears to be going and if indeed fuel and energy prices go in the direction they're going, a tenner will hardly be enough. That's why we're looking for also more people on a job seekers payment to be eligible for the fuel allowance because that at least would help. It may be insufficient and unfortunately I fear it will be but at least without it, if people don't get at least that then they're going to be in even worse circumstances. So that's why it is so important that we start to address the challenges that face people who are working age payments who are often struggling to make ends meet. Okay, Breed, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Breed O'Brien, Head of Policy and Media with the INOU. That's the Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed. Now, another group of uh, people who will be watching uh, the budget very closely next Tuesday are the carers in this country. And Catherine Cox is Head of Communications and Carer Engagement at Family Carers Ireland. A very good morning to you, Catherine. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, what will you be hoping to hear and what are you expecting to hear next Tuesday? Uh, morning Michael and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'd say the first thing I'd say is that we call um, called our pre-budget submission this year the Forgotten Frontline and we did that because we firmly believed that family carers really were unseen, unheard and forgotten about throughout the pandemic and we would have been on many times with you arguing for them to be prioritised for vaccinations, for testing, for PPE and unfortunately it didn't happen. So now as we emerge from this pandemic we really hope um, that we have learned lessons first of all from it and secondly that government will keep the commitments that they made in their programme for government last October, which we welcomed at the time. They promised a number of things, one being they would develop a carer's guarantee, which basically would provide a basket of supports and services to family carers in their community, regardless of where they lived. Mm. They promised that in the programme for government. We have not seen it. They promised a refreshed uh, and updated national carer strategy. No progress there. They promised introduction of a statutory home care scheme. There has been some but slow progress. So actually in this budget, we're not asking for a huge amount. We're asking for them to keep the promises they made in the programme for government that got them elected. Um, And to do that, reform the carer's allowance. For example, the carer's allowance is less today than it was in 2009. So in 2009 it was €221 per week. Today it's €219 per week. And that's for somebody providing full-time care for a loved one, most likely over 40 hours per week, in some cases every hour 24-7 per week. And only one in four carers get that carers allowance Mm. because it's means-tested. So we need to see reform of carers allowance um, and the Speaker Breeders spoke about a 10 euro increase. We have looked for 8 euro increase which again seems very little but we've looked for that along with those other promises that are in there. So the carers guarantee basically getting rid of that postcode lottery that exists whereby where you live determines what you will and what you won't get. And another really important piece that we've looked for is 
every carer in this country, they have no entitlement to uh, to respite. They have no entitlement to a day's break. So we've asked that as a minimum, carers get an annual entitlement to 20 days respite per year and an entitlement to a needs assessment to look at what do they need to care safely for their loved ones. And if that's training, if that's equipment, that they get that so they can continue caring safely for loved ones at home and continue saving our state 20 billion euro every year. And get the type of holidays, if you like, uh, that working Mm. people enjoy in or around that 20-day mark. But that's a full-time job, uh, more than a full-time job. One, as you say, Mm. uh, that requires people to provide care 24-7. You're asking for help to provide that care, support to provide that care. But what about those who don't qualify for the carer's allowance? The three out of four carers uh, in this country country who uh, aren't paid that uh, allowance. Uh, Do you want anything for them? Do you want more people to be eligible or do you want uh, people who aren't eligible uh, to avail of the supports that come with that? Because there's a lot more than that basic payment, uh, whether that's uh, medical supports or support in terms of uh, the household allowance and that type of thing. Absolutely, Michael. And that's why we've asked for the income disregard for the carers allowance to be raised. So that would bring far more family carers who are providing uh, high levels of care into that net to get the carers allowance. And you're right, the carers allowance is really a gateway payment to other payments. So it's so important that family carers can get access to this. And at the moment, you know, they not only look at the carers income when they're determining whether they'll get carers allowance, they look at their spouses, their partners and income in the household. So there's no other job where you would go and look for, go for an interview and be asked, well, we're going to pay you, but only based on what your partner is earning, whether you will earn a wage or not. So it is an extremely unfair system. If somebody is providing care, it should be based on needs rather than means as to whether they could access a payment or not. And long term, we would like to see the carers allowance taken completely out of social welfare um, and really a payment, a wage paid for work done and really, really valuable work in our society. But for now, we're trying to get far more carers into the net for carers allowance over the next year, two, three years and over the programme for government, which is something they've promised. It's also something that comes out of the recommendations from the Citizens' Assembly that the carers allowance will be completely reformed. Um, We also want to stop what's happening at the moment, which is carers are being penalised if they're trying to put aside some savings for down the road, perhaps when they're no longer around for the person they're caring for. So if they're saving, they're penalised um, by that's taken mm. into account as means as well for carers' allowance. We have to stop that. We also have to look at the pension for long-term family carers. Some get to pension age, have no entitlement to either contributory or non-contributory pension, again because of means. So we need to see those anomalies taken out of the system and really we need to see government step up, do what they promised to do and put in place supports and services that will allow our family carers to continue doing what they want to do, which is care for their loved ones. And their loved ones want to remain at home and they can only do that if they're supported to do so. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Catherine, thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us this you. morning. That's Catherine Cox, who's Head of Communications and Carer Engagement at Family Carers Ireland. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now the government is uh, to make a 165 billion euro announcement uh, today uh, when it publishes uh, the National Development Plan in Cork. Paul Hosford, political correspondent with uh, the Irish Examiner, is on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is a 10-year plan, uh, or this money will be spent over 10 years, and this will be the plan for providing the country's infrastructure over the course of that time? Yeah, so it'll be a, a 10-year plan for the capital expenditure over the over the next 10 years or up to 2027. It commits €165 billion, Euro, which is €16 billion more than, than the previous plan, which was only launched in 2018, but was reviewed once the government came into, into power last year. And the first phase of that review was done in, in April. And now, obviously, the, the big launch, the big fanfare is being done in Cork this morning. Okay, so it's a a 10-year plan, but the last one was only three years ago. Uh, So uh, it can be altered at any stage, then, I take it. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's nothing really um, that that makes any of this, uh, I I suppose, uh, have to be delivered or or, or essential to be delivered other than they are essentially high-level political promises. Um, The idea behind the whole thing in in, in 2018 was to kind of put put on paper, a long-term vision that would survive uh, subsequent governments that would kind of, uh, you, you would set out what the, what the goals were well in advance so that whatever happened electorally, there would still be a, a national planning framework there. Okay. I remember uh, the, the Ireland 2040 document kind of set out this kind of long-term vision and, mm. and I suppose, uh, I suppose uh, none of it was really... Uh, pre-funded or, or none of it was kind of set out in legislation uh, but uh, some of it has started to kind of uh, be delivered or, or at least go out to, to public consultation. Okay, it gives an indication of government thinking but there is no guarantee and I think people in RD listening to us uh, this morning uh, in particular will know that uh, because uh, they'd have heard Eamon Ryan, the Minister for Transport, say very recently in the Dáil just because it's in the development plan doesn't mean there's a guarantee that it'll be delivered. He was speaking about the RD bypass and uh, that may not even pass planning, uh, even though it is in the National Development Plan. In fact, uh, I think that some people would be surprised uh, if it does pass planning, given uh, the idea of it going through a a bog. Uh, But uh, all of the roads that were in the 2018 plan, uh, you're reporting in the Irish Examiner today, will be in this plan that's going to be published today. And I take it that includes the RD bypass. So any any road that was committed to in the 2018 NDP will be continued, but there will be I suppose there is a, a question there over a commitment that's in the programme for government from last year. That was the, the commitment that there would always be a, a two-to-one spending on public transport as opposed to roads, which means that for every euro that's spent on a road, two euro has to be spent somewhere in either public transport or walking infrastructure. So there's some suggestion, uh, I suppose the, the Greens were fairly reticent to commit to all of these roads because they are major, you know, I suppose contributors to, to pollution, the, the the private car journeys that will be taken on them, but yeah, there I suppose what some in the Greens or, or, or some within government are kind of saying is that yeah, this could impact the delivery of the roads or the completion of roads or the scope of some of the roads that are committed to because you would have to have really significant 
public, mm. uh, public transport expenditure to, to match or, or to double what is being spent on these roads. Now, that's not really a problem in some cases if you look at, at something like the Metrolink which is mm. you know we're, we're, we're talking in, in the you know in the billions to be spent on, on that uh, you look at the, the DART uh, expansion west uh, anyone who's familiar with Dublin will know that the DART kind of runs up the coast but there's two commuter rail lines that head out to Minuta and out to uh, out to, to kind of nice Newbridge they'll be electrified over the next couple of years that's going to cost a decent amount so I thought that the government hope is that you spend enough on, on those big capital projects that mm. half of that will still be a significant sum and that roads like the RD bypass um, obviously with the examiner we're, we were looking at the, the Cork Limerick mm. motorway which is, I, I suppose a lot of people still can't really believe that this, the second and third cities in, in the country aren't linked by a major road that you kind of still need to go through a lot of towns and villages to to get between them mm-hmm. uh, I, I suppose that uh, like a lot of people whose lives are Dublin-centric can't understand that it would take you as long to get from Dublin to Limerick as well, Cork to Limerick. Mm. It's essentially the same drive. So I, I suppose a lot, a lot of people in government are banking on the, the fact that there are major capital out, outlays on public public transport and that that would kind of lead you to have a bit of wiggle room on major road development. Yeah, uh, And you're reporting this morning uh, that uh, the Cork to Limerick M20 motorway uh, will be in this repackaged uh, plan uh, as will the Northern Ring Road. Now I take it the motorway is probably guaranteed uh, because the bigger projects are, are more likely uh, to get delivered are they not than the smaller uh, projects like the Ring Road uh, for Cork. It may go ahead, it may not uh, but uh, there's no guarantee as Eamon Ryan said that any of these projects will be delivered uh, and would it be the case that if all of uh, these roads are in the National Development Plan today Uh, that there's a risk that the plan, the development plan, is at odds with the programme for government. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that that some of the Greens are are fairly kind of concerned about is is this idea that, you know, the the programme for government set out our our climate change goals, it set out what we want to spend on public transport, but then the, the National Development Plan has always envisaged major road developments like the Northern Ring Road, like the RD bypass, like... The, the Cork Limerick motorway, uh, there's, there's a stretch of motorway in Mayo being built. You know, there's, mm. you know, there's motorways all over, over the country, or, or roads that are being upgraded. And the NDP has always uh, envisaged those, um, and government planning as, as far back as uh, the last decade has always envisaged that these would would be part of the the country's capital outlay. So yeah, there will be there mm. will be, and we've seen already. You know, there's a a stretch of ring road in Limerick which has caused which caused major issues a couple of months ago between you know Eamon Ryan and local TDs there uh, where you know, there, there was I suppose a hesitance uh, on the minister's part to, to sign off on this ring road because I suppose the, the it was felt that the, the public transport infrastructure or the or the cycling infrastructure was, was coming second to, to this new stretch of road mm. around around Tomengate yeah, and uh, there's the climate action plan uh, and uh, the commitment to reducing uh, emissions and so on and that there would be more focus on public transport. Maybe people will be hopeful that the Navin rail line uh, will uh, be looked on favourably in uh, the national development plan uh, today. Uh, but uh, I just wonder about that €16 billion Euro extra. Will that help to balance uh, those commitments uh, uh, if that goes towards public transport? Hello, Paul. Oh, 
the line appears to have dropped out. We'll find out all about the 16 billion euro more than was allocated in the previous plan three years ago in the 2018 to 27 plan when the government uh, announces and publishes its plan for the next 10 years up uh, to 2030, which it will do later today in Cork. Our thanks there to Paul Hosford, uh, who is a political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Postmasters met over the weekend uh, for their annual conference. Uh, let's hear what was uh, discussed. Kieran McEntee is Vice President with the Irish Postmasters Union and on the line with us. A very good morning to you, Kieran, and uh, thank you indeed for joining us uh, as you, always. Uh, I take it uh, that there's some hope and uh, a lot of expectation that some certainty will be brought to the sector. Had um, Minister Robert Try and Minister Hildegard Nocton there. We, we're hoping that the government comes in behind this because if we don't, if we don't get something, there will be post offices closed. And we've got a package we did with with uh, Anne Post there for 18 months. And after that happens, there will be problems with some post office because business has changed during the pandemic, and we accept that. But we still need rural Ireland and urban Ireland. Like we, annual injection into the economy is 4.6 billion euro, and, and 1.3 million people go through their post offices every week. Mm. And, and, I, and I know it's, it's okay, Michael. It's like the local radio station and everything else. But it's it's to do with local communities and, and local people. Everybody hasn't credit cards that they can pay. Everybody hasn't cars. Everybody had, had just can't go and have all these different things. So we, de- we need the local services. We have daycare centres, we have Alzheimer's units, we have play schools, um, local sports uh, amenities in, in rural and urban areas. And we need to keep the hub there, the post office as the hub for small stores and shops to stay alive mm. in the area. Because if the money goes out of this area... And it's an old saying, all the, if, the mon- if the money's not being paid out in the area, the money will go somewhere else. So it's to keep the local villages and towns open, we want this uh, post office remain there. Having said that, I'm sure you accept that the post office network, as we've always known it, cannot continue as it was and has to reinvent itself and provide different services. I, I take it you were pushing a, an open door to a large extent with Robert Troy because uh, while he was attending uh, your conference as a minister he could have been attending as a, a member couldn't he? Yes he's a postmaster as well yeah but they understand this but everybody loves us and I know I used that phrase with mm. you before mm. but we, they have to do something If they have to come along and say yes we're going, we're going. It's, we were looking for 17 million of uh, a PSO we, we just want a payment to keep a post office in an area. Mm. Every area needs needs a vital service there. So if we had, it, there's not going to be enough money in transactions by doing mail because all the different stuffs are going online. So the post office will not have them services. So you want subsidies, really? Yeah, you, well, you, a, a subsidy of such that you mm. can you can keep rural Ireland alive. That's what it is. Yeah. How much per post office? Well, we have no figures because take my small post office, I would be very small. But big post office, 200 post office wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't need anything because they'd be fit to uh, keep the business going there. But the bottom 400 would need a subsidy mm. to keep them into uh, surviving. Mm. And, and all different. And if, if they don't want us, tell us. 
Yeah. I, I'm happy enough if somebody comes back to say to me, we don't want you, but don't, don't be telling the people out there that, oh, we need a post office and it's, oh, it's, it'll, it'll be me that'll close my post office here. Mm. And nobody else. I will take the notion of quitting and then they will not put the post office again in my village. That's, that's what's going to happen if they don't do something. And people, there's other good jobs out there, very smart people in post offices all over the country, and they will go and get another job at 10 or 12 euros an hour. A lot of people are under that uh, wages. And they kept open during the, the pandemic. They've looked after people, they've delivered stuff, they've done forms for people. Mm. It's, it's a social thing as well as a, a business thing for people. Like. And in reinventing yourself, you'd be providing services that wouldn't have been traditionally provided uh, through post offices. Yeah, well, we, we were looking for to get all government forms. If you wanted a form mm. for some uh, application or proof of ID or all these different things has to be done. Mm. We are the person there that... that, that We'd know the person coming in, we, we mm. can send it off, we can look after it for farmers, different application forms. Because we're all on talking about this environment and looking after yeah. the environment all the time. They keep in, they paper, stop wasting paper. If, if, if the government come along and said we in any form that's changed, even when the budget comes up next week, mm. if something was changed for an application, instead of having leaflets and leaflets to be filled in, if we had a system in our, with the technology we have, we have Windows 10 and all that, yeah. if we had a system that you, the form, all they'd have to change in Dublin is two words, whatever they change mm. that, and we could print that form. Look at, look at what saving that would be mm. in, 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 for the environment as well. But would that save the post offices, though, or would that just borrow time? Well, it would borrow time, certainly, but yeah. the life but is changing. It, I mean, in, in a short period of time, uh, I think everybody is going to be doing that on their phone, aren't they? Well, see, that's the thing is, a lot of people can do it on the phone, but a lot of people can't do I mean, mm. but, but ID, but it won't ID, be long, you're going to have to present yourself somewhere. Mm. Okay, yeah, no, that's a different thing, but that, is that enough in it itself? Because, no, it's not enough, yeah, but, yeah, but, but yeah, at least mm. if, if we knew, if we, if we knew, the, there's going to be a different way, we had mm. we representatives from Northern Ireland down at the conference, and we were just going through it with them. It's going to be a different type of post office. Yeah. Completely different. It could be mm. at the end of a, a well, that's it. Or that. This must be a problem right across the world. Uh, is anybody uh, coming up with solutions better than we are here? Well, well, England subsidising, and Spain subsidising, right. I think mm. Portugal subsidising, and a lot of the other countries is given a subsidy yeah. to keep the post office in the area. Okay. All right, well, if that's uh, the only solution elsewhere, maybe it's the one that they need to look at here. We have to leave it there for the moment, though, Kieran. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. Kieran McEntee is the Vice President of the Irish Postmasters Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, as you heard, I'm sure, last week, uh, the Residential Tenancies Board has said uh, that renting in this country has increased 7% in a year. That's year on year in Q2 of 2021. Now, um, that's an average nationwide. In Dublin, uh, the price inflation stood at 4.4% and outside of Dublin at 10.4%. Again, that's an average. In a country where they're doing a lot, they say, to try 
and control uh, the increases in how much it costs to rent. But some parts of the country are seeing rents increase by as much as 17%. Let's uh, speak to John Mark McCarthy, who's Chief Executive of the housing charity Threshold. Good morning to you, John Mark, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, We are being told that as much as possible is being done to stop rent from increasing. So how is it possible for rents to increase by so much? Yeah, that's a really good question, Michael. And I guess there's a number of things. One is just a, a complete lack of supply uh, and um, a loss of um, tenancies um, from the market in, in recent months and, and the last number of years. Um, we're simply not building enough um, housing um, and also, uh, people are desperate for, for housing. They're desperate to uh, remain in the houses they're, they're in and to source um, housing um, because we have a growing population. Um, we have smaller um, household sizes. So, um, but for the most part, these increases are illegal, are they not? I mean, most of the country uh, is in what they call rent pressure zones. Uh, this legislation, uh, which means uh, that rent can increase by no more than 4%. Absolutely, and look, this shows a, a level of flouting of the rent pressure zone legislation. Um, that with that four percent annual increase up until the recent uh, legislation, which went for a, this harmonised, more kind of inflation-based measure of, of increase, um, we're clearly seeing um, increases to rents that that are, are far more than the four percent in in many cases, and that is a real worry. Uh, for us as we assist and advise and represent tenants um, and try to assist them in, in affording their, their, their rent to tenancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that 7% is, is an average rate across the country. It hides big increases in places like, you know, Leitrim over 17% um, of an increase. Um, and the fact that that average monthly rent across the country um, is now at uh, 1,352 per month, which for for many people on on middle to lower incomes is is a really sizable chunk of mm-hmm. their their annual budget or or, or their weekly budget, um, and it also kind of points to things like um, non compliance by landlords, not just in relation to to rent but but other issues, um, and I think you know if you look at Louth and Meath. Um, they both have both counties have a standard average rent above the thousand per month mark, so um, it's very very substantial um, costs that, that that private renters are incurring in Louth and Meath. Um, I mean, there was there was a slight decrease kind of quarter on quarter in in, in Louth, but the overall trend is obviously is up year on year. Mm. So in Louth, you're looking at um, just under eleven. 150 per month um, in Meath. Uh, the average there is, is, is uh, 1340, uh, 1340, um, which is an annual year-on-year increase of 9%. Yeah. Um, and then within that, obviously, places like Ashburn, uh, they're, yeah. they're, they're very kind of sizable rents. Um, and I guess the closer you are to the, the towns and the cities, the, the, the more expensive it is generally. Yeah. Um, so it, it does point, uh, Michael, to a, a continued challenge for um, people who are trying to uh, move into the private rented sector to access accommodation in the first place and for people to um, to budget, especially given the news of um, increased um, energy costs in, in the coming months. Mm. Uh, but what happens if a landlord flouts the law, if uh, they increase the rent at a, a rate that is at odds with the legislation, uh, 17% in Leitrim, uh, if it's illegal to do that, what happens if they're found out? Yeah, well, there, there is now um, a sanctions and investigations 
to a clause in in the residential tenancies legislation and a resident and a, a sanctions and investigations unit within the residential tenancies board so that's very much to be welcomed um they've been in situ for a number of years now um and so they will investigate um such uh, uh, situations but often it's for the the tenant to kind of raise these concerns Mm. and often given the abject lack of accommodation and and given um, the weak position that that many renters are in they are uh, less likely um, to maybe raise some of these concerns because they don't want to rock the boat with their landlord right so you have this kind of odd situation where uh, private renters may well know that a landlord is is flouting those situations Mm. uh, those those, uh, laws um, but the, they're less impelled to um, to report that because they, they want to remain in the property. They don't want any kind of cons- abject consequences to, to um, happen to them. Um, and um, I think a lot of this only comes out maybe in kind of major disputes where the tenancy is at risk anyway or where maybe the, um, the landlord has... Um, Invoked a notice of termination, and so that the uh, the, ten- the tenant is is um, uh, challenging that. Mm. Um, so it, it it does point to that continued um, weakness that that the tenants have relative to landlords in in, in many respects. I mean, mm. obviously these things are a very delicate balance between tenant and landlord, but um, it does point to the continued and, and increased challenge. Uh, for for private renter private renters because they're not seeing salary increases or wholesale kind of um, uh, income increases to mm. the same extent that we're seeing kind of increases in rents. No, well, quite the opposite. Like everybody, the cost of living is already on the increase and is going to increase. Uh, quite significantly uh, going into the months ahead. Uh, but is there a sanction for landlords? Are they fined? Is uh, there uh, uh, some penalty uh, if uh, they're found to be increasing rent at a, a rate higher than the 4% if they're in a rent pressure zone or uh, if uh, they do it a second time or a third time? Are, are there other sanctions? Or, or how does all of that work, Mark? Or John Mark? Yeah, uh, generally some kind of financial-based sanction. Uh, following um, an, uh, you know, an, an investigation, um, that that generally is the seen as the kind of the deterrent, um, and you know um, that might be uh, as a result of um, the RTB uh, investigating, but uh, it may be because um, uh, a tenant um, is is reporting something to to the RTB. But again, um, that is um, that's subdued, uh, you know mm. the. the the extent of the reporting isn't, isn't as much as it, as it might be, just given that um, obviously uh, tenants themselves tend to be in a more precarious uh, situation. Um, so, uh, like, it, it's welcome that it's in place. Um, there are, um, you know, fines and, and, you know, and financial sanctions imposed on on landlords. Mm. It's probably um, much smaller, a lot smaller than the actual extent of the. Uh, of, of the per practice or the malpractice, but mm. at least it's it's a part of the legislation that's in situ now that wasn't there say five years ago. Mm. So that that is welcome. And what tends to happen uh, if uh, a tenant makes a complaint, the landlord uh, is fined and uh, ordered to reduce the rent that's being charged. Uh, is it typical then that the landlord will evict the tenant and charge the next tenant uh, what uh, he was told not to do by the RTB? 
Yeah, that's possible. I mean, there are examples of, um, you know, where actions are taken by a landlord really as um, some kind of um, negative response to the, the tenant's actions. Um, and that's why uh, tenants are very... Uh, they're very loath to um, report anything if they're a sitting tenant and they have no intention to kind of move from that tenancy and, and um, they don't want to feel like the spotlight to be placed or for, you know what maybe rents to be increased further mm. um so i think that that is a a, a real factor but um yeah like it, it i think you know it's still relatively new the whole um, inspections and mm. sanctions area it's just in a couple of years so um, it's becoming established, um, and I think over time, with more and more cases of um, landlords being, um, you know, the the non-compliance being exposed uh, and fines being uh, imposed mm. on landlords, I think it'll become uh, more known across um, landlords that um, certain behaviours are, are, you know. Have, yeah, provide a, a risk of being found out if you like. That probably answers the question I asked you first uh, about how can rents increase uh, by 7, 10 or 17% if uh, the law states that they can't increase any more than 4%. Uh, I think the answer is uh, because the landlord can increase them buy as much as they want and there really isn't anything to stop them. Uh, there may be an obstacle along the way but eventually they'll end up uh, getting what they want in rent uh, if that means they have to evict a tenant that's what they'll do. Well I suppose um, some of the kind of very large increases are in areas that um, haven't been in the rent pressure zones um, but that said there, there are clearly increases in areas that have been rent pressure zones from the get go. Um, and um, that is uh, that's an ongoing concern. It's been a concern since um, early 2017, when you know the assumption might have been that you you would only see modest well four percent. It's not so modest; it's, it's quite mm-hmm. a substantial increase. But you'd see increases around that four percent mark. Or, but but we've consistently seen that even in rent pressure zone areas. Um, those yeah. those increases, um, and as you, you know, as I was saying there, um, it's not unusual in Louder Meath to be paying um, upwards of eleven hundred, twelve hundred, thirteen, fourteen hundred for for your your monthly rent. It's it's a, a loss of money. It's a big big outgoing mm-hmm. uh, for a family or an individual or a couple. Well, that's it. Four percent of a thousand euro or two thousand euro, uh, which may be the case in places like Ashbourne or some of our listeners uh, in uh, Dublin, uh, for that matter. It's a, a lot of money, uh, and that uh, is why it's so concerning for people. And uh, of course, uh, as bad as it is, if you're planning to rent for the rest of your life, uh, I think there's probably very few who could continue to pay rent at that scale and hope to save uh, to buy a property of their own. Absolutely, yeah. And I guess, you know, the, the Housing for All um, policy framework is an attempt to try and address some of that. Um, but you have a, yeah, we, we, we've this kind of situation which is which has kind of got worse, which is that, that lack of um, affordability coupled with a, um, a lack of uh, ability to, to save. Um, and to kind of plan and invest in your future um, yeah. as, a, as a homeowner. Um, now, there are some measures that, 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 that are coming down the line there, um, and there's also a number of um, cost rental uh, initiatives that, you know, if you're lucky enough to, to access the, con- the new cost rental housing, um, would, would give you some level of kind of uh, probably financial um, 
uh, cushioning. Um, but it, it remains the case that um, on the basis of our um, tenant sentiment surveys, um, that we, um, we 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 witness many of our, our uh, clients saying, you know, they would rather not be in the private rent sector; they would rather be owning their own home or indeed accessing um, social housing. Um, but they can't access social housing because of the waiting lists or lack of eligibility. And in terms of owning their own home, well, I mean, they can't. They just simply can't put enough away for any kind of meaningful dent on a deposit for for a house, let alone um, compete uh, in the current market for for um, housing to buy. Okay. Um, so it, it, it's a it's a real tough um, yeah. challenge. You also have kind of any you know an aging um, population in, in the rental sector um, with with increased needs and generally reduced incomes um, as they, as they um, reach retirement. And that's also a kind of an ongoing issue, and we're, we're, we're uh, looking into that area specifically. So um, I guess, you know, the, the RTB report underlines some of the trends that we've seen for some time now, which is a lack of supply, a, a, a reduction in the number of tenancies, but worryingly um, an increase in, in rents, because obviously things had kind of slowed down to some extent, but certainly uh, quite a substantial increase in rents immediately outside of the urban areas. Yeah. Um, the likes of Louth and Neve, um, albeit a, a small kind of quarter-on-quarter quarter dip in Louth, um, generally speaking, in those kind of commuter um, counties and commuter okay. towns. And uh, if uh, people are looking for advice, uh, there's expert advice available from Threshold, either online or through your helpline, one eight hundred four five four four five four. John Mark, we'll leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you thank indeed, you. as always, for joining us on the programme. John Mark McCafferty is uh, the chief executive of Threshold. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to what's being called the Pandora Papers by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. This is millions of documents from 14 offshore services uh, that have been leaked to the ICIJ that involves some 146 media companies around the world, 600 journalists from 117 countries who have been looking at uh, the tax implications for those uh, who have been avoiding paying tax and uh, countries and jurisdictions that have not been able to uh, to gather this tax. This leak is really Panama Papers on steroids. This is the Pandora Papers because we think we're opening a box on a lot of things. We're looking at about 12 million documents from 14 different service providers. These are law firms, um, firms that set up secret offshore accounts for people in multiple jurisdictions. The British Virgin Islands, Belize, Samoa. These documents, for the very first time, is actually showing the US as a tax haven itself. That's Jared Ryle of uh, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists who have been looking at uh, the business affairs of more than 30 world leaders and 130 billionaires. We're talking about some of the most famous people in the world that are in these documents. Presidents prime ministers, government ministers, the king of Jordan, a number of very high-profile Russian clients, people that are very close to Vladimir Putin. We're seeing them buying real estate. We're seeing them trading in shares, using offshore companies. They're buying houses, cars, artworks. I guess it mostly demonstrates that the people that could end the secrecy of offshore, could end what's going on, are themselves benefiting from it, so there's no incentive for them to end it.
Right, let's uh, talk uh, to uh, Jim Clerken, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Oxfam Ireland. A uh, very good morning to you, Jim, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, one of uh, the media partners involved in this is uh, the Irish Times, and the Irish Times is reporting this morning, as people would have heard, uh, that Ireland is a de facto tax haven. That's something that you've been saying for some time in Oxfam. Good morning, Michael. Uh, thanks for having, having me on. It's great to be back on the show. Uh, look, this this is a this is yet another um, shocking uh, reveal and, and an extraordinary piece of journalism, by the way, by the, by the consortium. That this is the amount of work that's gone into being able to produce this 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 papers are, are, are is quite incredible. But once again, it shows that um, across the world we have a, a global problem about tax secrecy and about money secrecy. The OECD estimates that 11.3 trillion dollars i mean the the figures are very hard to to kind of even grasp uh are is being held in offshore accounts across the world uh, and if you if you read the that article those articles in the Irish times i mean you know we when we think of offshore we think of you know places like the caribbean and cayman and so so on and people in uzbekistan think of ireland as being offshore so mm. you know when 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 ireland is 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 in that mix you you have to be very worried and it it is something that we know has been problematic for a long time and you know that's why global tax reform global reform of of how companies are allowed to to register the, the to make sure we need to see the beneficial owners of companies so not secret names and and kind of uh, obscure names of companies we need to know who owns these companies where they where they're residing where the money is flowing and where they're paying their tax because mm. clearly the secrecy is being used to avoid paying tax that's okay. what it's all about lower fitzwilliam street in dublin too uh, appears to be offshore there's a, an empty office there uh, where some 800 limited partnerships are registered uh, i'm not sure uh, what the difference is between a limited company and a, a limited partnership uh, but this is essentially 800 Entities that are avoiding paying tax, it would seem. That's it, and and these are you know that's it's it's there there's no staff in that building <laughs> for those companies. So clearly, you know, there, it's been used as a post box, um, as a register to to funnel funds from across the world uh, through Ireland uh, to onwards to elsewhere. But you know, and and it's you know, Ireland is just Ireland's issues are just one part of the global problem, obviously, but. It's a huge global problem. I mean, the, the the human impact of this, when you when you step away from the enormous numbers, uh, come back to you know where we are in Ireland and where countries are across the world, particularly in poorer parts of the world, where um, you know the, the 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 tax revenue from these monies should be used to pay for hospitals, should be used to pay for schools. We 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 have to recover from the pandemic across the world. We have to to rebuild huge parts of our. Um, infrastructures and so on. We have to tackle climate change. You know, the funds from those things are being denied, or for those things are being denied because extraordinarily wealthy people are in a position to use systems that have been set up and have been allowed to, to perpetuate over years. So mm. it's it's vital that this is stopped for everybody's benefit. This doesn't benefit any of society except a very, very small elite who are just avoiding paying their fair share, which means that everybody else is suffering. Who would be extraordinarily wealthy if they paid their taxes anyway? Well, this is the point. I mean, how much wealth can you can you use in a lifetime? When you get to that level of wealth, I mean, it's just it's just perpetuating you know enormous numbers that probably don't mean that much even to those people. So you know, it is it is shocking, and it is 
but it but it's a it, but it's a huge problem and i mean if if we can resolve these issues and if we can have a system where there is transparency about who owns assets uh, where they're based whether they're paying their fair share primarily in their own country um then you know it could transform uh, society across the world you see even in the us i mean as mentioned all over these papers where or you know parts of the us are described as a tax haven now mm-hmm. as well so you know, it's it's there are societies across the world that are being denied uh, revenue, which is belonging to them. By the way, this is a tax owned by the people of Ireland, the people of the US, the people of developing countries. It's their money. Mm. <laughs> it's being denied them to pay for the things that that are required by those societies. Mm, yeah, well, I suppose we'll be hearing about the national development plan today, and people will be, yeah, yeah. you know, bamboozled by the figures. Uh, but we could have even more money to build more roads and hospitals and whatever else. Uh, and indeed, uh, it's quite probable. Uh, if uh, not possible uh, that children wouldn't die of hunger or malnutrition in certain corners of the world if these taxes were paid. But they're not doing anything illegal, are they? They might be working the laws, uh, but in this country, uh, when it comes to those 800 companies or limited partnerships, uh, as they're known as, uh, registered in one empty office, they're not doing anything illegal. Uh, This is governed by a, a law that dates back to 1907, apparently. Yeah, which which badly needs to be adjusted. I mean, you see that uh, according to the reports, I mean that there was a, a huge issue in Scotland, and Scotland, the Scottish government identified that they were they were also being used. So uh, they have they have uh, tried to to close off those loopholes, and we need we need to do the same. But but you know, to say it's all legal, we we actually don't know. I mean, we you know elements the the, the company structure may be legal, but we don't know where the money's coming from. This could well be from from criminal gain as well, or from tax evasion as well as tax avoidance. So we, we just don't know the legality of a lot of it, to be to be honest. But the the important thing is that, like, this is, you know, how, how do we tackle inequality? Yeah. How do we tackle poverty? We do that by investing in public services. That's the that's the primary way to do that. And if if the public purse is limited because uh, extraordinarily wealthy individuals and wealthy companies are not paying their fair share of tax, that means we can't do that. So it exacerbates inequality. Those at the very top, those extremely wealthy individuals, are, are d- deliberately avoiding paying their fair share, which which means that it creates an even bigger gap between those elites and the rest of society, and the, those mm. at the those who are most dependent in society, the most vulnerable, are the most affected. Well, it may not be illegal, but that doesn't make it right. Uh, and therein uh, lies uh, the challenge, I suppose, uh, for the tax authorities here and elsewhere and indeed governments for that matter. I mean, the idea of 800 companies registered to an empty office in Dublin is just ridiculous Uh, and this is happening under our nose Uh, and if it's not right, surely we can do something to make it right. Well, absolutely, and we've been saying this for years. I mean, you know, if if people are paying their their correct dues wherever it is, then what's the need for all the secrecy? What's the need for all the you know the the smoke and mirrors. I mean, we we need to see clear um, public information on companies and on the owners of companies. The same way any small business that's listening to this has to register the, their interest, and you know anybody can go to the company's office and find out. You know, why mm. why, why does that rule only apply to you know businesses who are who are doing their best, mm. <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to these extraordinarily wealthy people and, and companies. And, and I mean, unfortunately, because of this, Ireland is, is being implicated. It's, it's very bad for our international reputation. That's why Ireland needs to be a very active part in the global reforms at the OECD and in other places. And, you know, Ireland has traditionally 
kind of resisted some of those changes and it's it's starting to move in the right direction but it needs to continue to move in that in that way because yeah. i mean it is a global problem we can't solve it ourselves but we can certainly do a lot to to prevent these kinds of things from happening and closing off loopholes that are allowing people across the world from you know avoiding paying their fair share and if the super rich are, are richer because uh, they've avoided paying tax uh, how much tax would you estimate or have you any idea how much tax is owed from that uh, 11 trillion euro 11,000 billion euro that is being held offshore how, how much of that would you estimate is due in taxes around the world well the figures that, that, that I've been looking at are you're, you're talking about you know possibly over 400 billion dollars I mean that that's a lot of tax revenue <laughs> you know that, mm. that but it but it's probably likely to be more than that that's just what's sort of known, I suppose. So you're talking about billions upon billions of, of dollars and euros um, and owed to probably every country in the world. So, you know, if, if you can imagine if you're a, in a developing country, uh, you know, a billion dollars or euros of money goes a very long way in terms of investment in public services. But similar mm. here, I mean, you know, every every billion euros makes a, a massive difference to our ability to pay what, what we need to pay in order to to protect and and to develop society here, so you know there there's a there's a, a battle to be to be won here, and but it, but we need to see proactive engagement from our own authorities to make sure that you know we know what we can't control, but what we can control is within our own jurisdiction, and so any any kind of loophole that allows this this kind of thing to 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 continue needs to be closed and needs to be closed fast, and we also need to engage very proactively in the international. Um, mechanisms to try and rid the world of these tax havens and tax secrecy that doesn't doesn't do anybody any good except a very very small group of extraordinarily wealthy people. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you, Jim, for joining us on the program this morning. Jim Clarkin is uh, the chief executive officer of Oxfam Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, coming uh, to us uh, today. Thanks uh, to Thomas, uh, who was on uh, the phone to us earlier on. He says uh, he really feels uh, that more money needs to be set aside in the next budget for the health service to address the huge backlog that has been caused as a result of COVID. So there's huge waiting lists for an array of tests and procedures and it needs to be addressed urgently. There certainly is a very serious backlog Log, and there's 900,000 people plus on waiting lists uh, for that matter waiting for a hospital appointment. Thank you Thomas for your call to the programme. Thanks to Claire who was on the phone to us as well. She was on WhatsApp actually. I beg your pardon. Claire says she's a carer who looks after her uncle who's in his 90s. She also cares for her mother who is 86 and she doesn't get paid for that and for her seven-year-old son who has autism. She gets half rate for both her uncle and her son, which works out at €109.50 each. And she's not entitled to the fuel allowance. She does not live with her uncle. She says she feels it's very unfair. She's uh, on uh, the carer's allowance, but if she was on the dole, she feels that she'd be getting everything. Tommy says a €10 or a €15 increase in the pension has to be given the go-ahead. The cost of living in Ireland is increasing on a weekly basis and is causing untold financial pressure on people. Those in the doll have no idea of what it's like to struggle for money with their large salaries and pensions. How can they claim to identify or understand what life is like for the ordinary person on the street?
street when they don't have the same money worries as the rest of us do. Thanks, uh, Tommy, uh, for your call to the programme as well and indeed everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. I'll come to some more of those comments in just a minute or two. I wish to make this statement in my capacity as Minister of State for European Affairs of Ireland. That's uh, the Minister for European Affairs. As you heard there a moment ago, Thomas Byrne, a Fianna Fáil TD for Me East, he was speaking in New York at a meeting of uh, the General Assembly uh, and indeed a, a meeting that focused on nuclear power around the world. And this is the statement that he made on behalf of Ireland. It was an honour today to chair the Security Council uh, for the final signature event of Ireland's presidency of the Council. Today it was very appropriate that the Council mark 25 years since the adoption of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. High Representative Nakamitsu and Executive Secretary Robert Floyd's briefings were a clear reminder of just how relevant nuclear disarmament is today. Nuclear tests should never happen anywhere or any time. Where they do, uh, they have an impact which transcends generations. Young people, such as Maggie Wanyaga from the CTBTO Youth Group, recognise the threat that these tests pose. They're taking action and reminding us all of, the resp- of our responsibility to them and to all future generations. Disarmament has been a long-standing key part of Irish foreign policy at the UN for decades. The Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty is an essential part of the nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation architecture and its entry into force is a strong priority for Ireland. Thanks to the impressive monitoring capacity of the CTBTO, we can now detect nuclear testing wherever it occurs. The system also has valuable scientific and practical benefits like disaster risk reduction and reducing humanitarian need. All of this was achieved without the treaty's entry into force, but there are key benefits from entry into force yet to be achieved. It's time for the treaty to achieve its full potential. On this 25th anniversary, Ireland calls for a renewed and collective effort so it can enter into force. States who are yet to sign and ratify the treaty should do so without delay. This call is especially urgent for Annex 2 states, without whom the treaty cannot enter into force. The CTBT is an important step towards a world without nuclear weapons, a world without the devastating humanitarian consequences for all of humanity. In this context, I also look forward to delivering a statement on behalf of Ireland at tomorrow's high-level plenary meeting of the General Assembly to commemorate the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. And if if I may, I may say a few words in my own language, the Irish language, uh, a few sentences. Uh, It's more an honour dom than so enough
Talon, Ibra, Ella, Lejane, of Augusta, Eric, and Lannister, Rai, Leshen, Obershin. Right, that's uh, local Finnafal TJ, Thomas Byrne, who's uh, the Minister for European Affairs, who chaired uh, that meeting of uh, the United Nations General Assembly in New York last week. He, he made that statement there to reporters uh, about nu- nuclear weapons and uh, that uh, position of Ireland about disarmament uh, being made loud and clear, uh, I think, uh, to some of uh, the nuclear powers around. Around the world in both Irish and in English, uh, but uh, the Irish, uh, the Oscalaga part of it may have uh, confused some of uh, the journalists there because they were from all around the world. Having said that, though, the reporters uh, who uh, the minister was speaking to were told that they could ask questions of Thomas Byrne in English or in Irish for that matter. I'm afraid I'm going to have to do a little bit more study for the Irish, so I apologise for that. Minister, on a nuclear-related issue, uh, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in his news conference here on Saturday said the IAEA needed to rule on Australia receiving nuclear-powered submarines from the UK and US. Otherwise, he said there would be a queue of countries also seeking this technology. What's your response? We, we have noted the situation uh, in relation to Alcusa. Um It is clearly a developing situation, and we will certainly keep... Um, our eyes on what is happening in this position, but clearly uh, our focus here today uh, is on the issue of nuclear weapons uh, and on the issue of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Uh, that it, We've had a huge success on that over the last 25 years. Uh, in relation to other matters, we'll certainly keep uh, ourselves abreast uh, of all developments there. Minister Thomas Byrne in New York taking questions uh, from some of the world's biggest media organizations. Thank you, Mr. Minister, and thank you, Ambassador. It's Pamela Falk from CBS News. There seems to be a direction in the uh, movement in the wrong direction on nuclear weapons. Iran is moving forward. The deal is still not uh, re-established with the United States. North Korea is testing. Are you worried that the world is going in the wrong direction on nuclear weapons. Thank you. I think the commitment of Ireland is to work, as we have done here uh, since we joined the United Nations, to work towards a world without nuclear weapons. We've done a lot of work and with other, other member states over the last decades. We remember and a very important step in that work today. But the purpose of that remembrance is to make sure that the world can go in a good direction on nuclear weapons and that we can redouble our efforts, re-highlight uh, the situation and make more people aware and particularly today, today, the voice of the youth, the voice of the next generation who deserve and need a world without nuclear weapons. Local Fianna Fáil TD, Thomas Byrne, the Minister for European Affairs representing Ireland in New York last week on the world stage there. Thanks to Paddy Duffy who's been in touch with us about the cost of rent increases and Paddy says in his text to us as long as 25% of the politicians are landlords the tenants will never be treated fairly and he also says uh, that uh, when it comes uh, to uh, the National Development Plan, 
uh, they can put whatever they want into it because at least two of the parties won't be in government after this one falls. So <laughs> it can be taken to be a load of hot air. Thank you indeed, Paddy, as always, uh, for your cynical message. Deirdre and Cal saying it'll be a total disaster if uh, the post offices are forced to, to close if they don't get the support that they need to stay open. Uh, another text uh, comes uh, to us from somebody uh, who says uh, that they'll give those who are on welfare, pensioners, uh, the unemployed, the carers, whoever else for that matter, a poor pittance. Uh, and at the same time, they'll give themselves a big fat bonus. Somebody else then texting saying, hi, Michael, they need to put 10 euro onto the price of a packet of 20 cigarettes. My God, that would take them up to around 25 euro a packet of cigarettes, wouldn't it? 10 euro onto the price of a packet of cigarettes and then ban vaping, says her texter. Thank you indeed uh, for making your views known to us uh, and indeed for sharing your thoughts with us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Gay Project has launched a new campaign called Proud AF. Hashtag Proud AF is aimed at reducing racism towards gay, bisexual and trans GBTQI plus people of colour and travellers in Ireland. Let's uh, hear more about this. Uh, Thomas Heising is a gay person of colour and spokesperson for the Proud AF campaign. Good morning to you, Thomas, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, When we talk uh, about racism, are are we talking about from the um, straight community or from within the gay community? Yeah, good morning, Michael. Yeah, so the campaign is addressing discrimination in the queer community or the LGBT. I know it's a lot, it's a mouthful with all the letters, Mm, but mm. yeah, Um, but also um, can also be translated into the wider society because some of the same issues that we see specifically in the queer community also manifest in the wider society as well. Okay. Um, there are some things that are specific, of course. Um, but yeah, you want me to go through it? Sorry, I, I, yeah, what is specific, Thomas? Yeah, no worries, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, if we can talk about wider society, there is this gap between the lived experience of people of colour versus what you'd call white settled Irish people. Um, and it's this thing of, people of colour will often say we are experiencing racism because some people will, on a regular basis still be experiencing racial discrimination, whereas you have a lot of white Irish people who say, no, we're not racist, Ireland is not racist. Mm. Um, and to a certain extent, Ireland is a very tolerant place in terms of just, you know, acceptance, tolerance, and Ireland has made great progress that should be celebrated. But that doesn't mean that there is not room for more. So, mm-hmm. and specifically in the gay in the queer community, there is this thing of positioning people of color and LGBT travelers as secondary to what we call white gay male and females in the queer community. That they somehow are less important to be championed. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is that queer people of color and trans non gender conform gender non conform forming people were there from the very beginning, lifting what we call the LGBT movement to where it is today. So it's this thing of highlighting the issues that not everyone feels the same fruit or not everyone is having the same kind of gains from the equality movement that we've seen recently. And is this racism more prevalent towards men in 
uh, what I think you said a few times is the queer community. Uh, I must ask you as well, is that a, a, a new turn of phrase? I haven't heard that being used before. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, yeah, no. It's yeah. Absolutely right. So the full moniker is LGBTQAIP+, which is quite a mouthful to yeah. say. So I usually say queer community. It used to be a slur queer, but in many ways it's a reclaimed term we use today. And not, not everyone is okay with it. I do apologize if some listeners are triggered by it. But it is a way of addressing the wider community because yeah. it is quite a diverse group of people. I think people don't really know how much it is. And a lot of people will say, oh, do you know, it's part of this political correctness movement. It's part of this, this, all these woke social justice warriors. Mm-hmm. But what it is, we've, people have always been exploring different identities. People have always had a very wide variety of sexual attraction to each other. It's just now that we're kind of getting into a period where we're understanding it and picking it up, basically. Okay, but is it men, gay men, uh, who tend uh, to uh, be faced with this type of racism? Uh, is it not as prevalent uh, with women? No, it's, 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 it's hard to quantify really as well. So what we would see is that on the opposite end of it, we have benefited, what you say, white gay men, white gay women have benefited a lot from the different movements that we have gained recently. So at the other end of the spectrum, it's hard to say which specific identities are being discriminated the most because Mm -hmm. we don't want an oppression Olympics, basically. We don't want to talk about who's most oppressed. We want to talk about how can we build a society that is easy to navigate for all of us. How can we have it? Mm. Because if it is that we tolerate a society with discrimination is the norm, we're going to have undermined the solidarity in the society. We're going to see people become less productive, which is what we're working towards the opposite in the other end, to have a society that is easy okay. to, want to navigate. So uh, uh, the- whatever term uh, you put on uh, the community, uh, it's the non-straight community. <laughs> That's another way of putting it, uh, I suppose. Uh, but if you're not straight, uh, it's quite probable uh, that you've been discriminated against yourself because of your sexuality. Uh, is it surprising or should it be surprising that people who are already discriminated against themselves are discriminating against others? That is a good question, yeah, because I think for a lot of listeners, listeners, maybe it might be weird that a marginalised group further marginalises its own people, you know, its own individuals. But it is that thing that it, it, there are historical reasons for why this has happened, and quite on contrary, we could go into it, would be a long interview about that, of course. Um, but it is this thing of realizing for everyone that the equality movement that we have right now is very fractional. It is. It is not. It is not unison. In a, it's not united efforts for everyone mm. that we've come to this place. It's not through united efforts that we've come to this place. So, for a lot of those people who started, like for instance, the Stonewall movement in 1969, for a lot of those people groups who championed the LGBT movement to reach where we are today, they are not benefiting from the equality movements that we have mm. now. For instance, and even though we should celebrate the equality movements we have now there's still a lot more to be done, of course. Um, okay. And it, we shouldn't be afraid of doing more. That's also another point of it. And we shouldn't be afraid of empowering each other. I think a lot of this campaign is about empowerment. It's about taking people of color in focus and the queer members of the travel community here in Ireland, putting them in focus and saying there is room for you, there's room for everyone, even though you don't feel it. 
Tell me about your own experience, if you will, Thomas. Uh, you describe yourself as a gay person of colour, and I, I take it, uh, I assume, uh, I hope I'm not wrong in assuming uh, that uh, you've been subjected to racism because of your colour. Is that racism different from the straight community towards you than it is from the gay community towards you? It is hard to say, like, all experiences with discrimination, racial discrimination, is going to be very different. Like, as an example, so I am what you'd call Afro-European. I'm, a, I'm from Denmark originally. I've lived here in Ireland for a couple of years, and I've visited many times prior to moving here. So my experience would be mostly discrimination towards me happening in Denmark more than it would have been here in Ireland. Of course, I'm a very visible person here in Cork, for, for instance both through the community, but also through various networking organizations. So for me, I would put myself in context where I would meet different kinds of biases, you know, intolerance, discrimination. That being said, my experiences here in Cork are much more positive than they were in Denmark. But I also have the benefit of being European. And even though I'm brown, I have dark curly hair, I look kind of African. There is still a there is still thing like my English is fairly good. So there are these there are some biases that are not confirmed when people speak to me. Whereas if you're a person from the Middle East or have Muslim heritage or have a bit of an accent, you will experience discrimination on a much more regular basis compared to me. And that is whether you're straight or whether you're gay or queer or trans not gender nonconforming. Again, mm-hmm. because we have so many characteristics and traits and people will form biases according to that. And part of that is to not do that, to not, if, if you meet a person, you, for instance, a person from Middle Eastern heritage, and you feel like a joke coming up inside your mind, that's where you probably should go yourself a little bit and say, no, I shouldn't perhaps make this joke, because it is incapacitating, it's very crippling to constantly have your heritage singled out as a source of ridicule or to, to have it be undermined. Mm. And uh, I take it then that that uh, the extension of that is that you're not welcome certain places uh, because of your colour or your culture or your heritage, as the case may be. It's a very interesting question because welcome, you know, it's always the thing of saying, where do you feel safe? Where do you feel that you can navigate? Like here, for instance, in course, there is a place called Chambers. I, there's also a gay dating app called Grinder. I frequent neither of those basis simply because I don't feel compatible with them because I would have my identity marker being brown, being uh, dark, having dark curly hair, having had my African heritage singled out quite on a regular basis. Whereas contrary, I would be quite visible with the running LGBT plus running club in court. Mm. I'd be the face of various campaigns. I don't mind kind of coming out and championing the rights in a very visible way. But there are still spaces that I know that my fellow white gay men who I also, a lot of them are very supportive, don't get me wrong, but there is that thing that I don't feel as if I can contribute to those spaces where I can benefit from the spaces the same way that they can. All right. You were born in Denmark. What brought you to Cork? Oh, I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. Mm. I've been living in so yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's, 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 the navel of the world. Okay. What brought you here? Uh, Just just it. Basically, love for it. Honestly, there's nothing okay. else. Like, I found a job here, but I quit that job, and now I'm working by myself, and I have my own business here. So, yeah. Okay, very good. Tax schedule, hey? Thomas Heising, gay person of colour and spokesperson with uh, the Proud AF campaign, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye. 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.